Hello and welcome to Oak Hill College's Deep Roots podcast, Conversations about Theology and Ministry. My name is Tim Ward and I'm one of the lecturers here at Oak Hill. And if you're wondering why at least a couple of us are in shorts, that's because we're down in the basement of Oak Hill Towers here, but up and out there, it's just hit 40 degrees, a UK record. So yeah, those of you watching this in August, maybe when it's like five degrees and raining, uh, (laughs) we are recording on that day. So this may be the shortest podcast we ever have. Who knows? My, my name is Eric. I'm also one of the faculty members here. And we are joined today by our friend and colleague, Chris Stead. Hi. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am the Mike Ovey Fellow here at Oak Hill. And that meant teaching a lot of systematic theology and um, or doctrine, depending on uh, what kind of language you like. So I've been doing that. Um, four years full-time here, but I did a bit of teaching while I was a curate before then, and um, we'll be talking about some of the some of the theological areas that I've enjoyed teaching as we go through the format of today. A particular student, I think, asked you for some Chris Stead's top book recommendations, and we heard yeah. of that and thought, here's the next podcast, Chris Stead's Book Club. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, just tell us how that came about. Um, yeah, so one of the students in my fellowship group, um, uh, well, I'll name him, Dan Halpin of Canterbury, well, very soon to be of Canterbury, asked for a list of books that have really had an impact upon me, that I've really enjoyed, that have shaped me in particular ways. And I thought, well, why not? And so I spent a bit of time coming up with two lists, just because, as anyone who's been taught by me knows, um, I tend to have a lot of lot to say um and so I, I came up with two lists one of them um was top 20 reads from the 20th century onwards and and there's more than 20 on there but it's around about 20 and then the second list is top 20 must-haves from the first 20 centuries of the church so two two lists and both of them idiosyncratic very much my own personal choice the second list the sort of must-haves is slightly more obje- objective because they refer to works that everyone recognises. These these are just standards. Um, but particularly the must-reads, which is where I think we're going to be chatting most of our time mm-hmm. today around. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's just books that have shaped me as a Christian, as a Christian student here at Oak Hill, as a pastor, and then latterly as a theological educator. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a there's a range of books on there, um, but they're all very much in my, mm-hmm. in my um, favourite mm-hmm. warehouse. So. That's wonderful, but you have not brought 40 books with you no, <laughs> today, no. so are we going to get our top five from each list? Or um, Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you maybe some snippets uh, in addition to the, it's mainly going to be five from the top 20 must-reads, but I brought some Augustine with me as well, um, as well. Uh, but yeah, it's, I'll, I'll give you some of the snippets and some of the highlights on the list and then do a bit of a deeper dive into Great. some of the others. Where would you like to start? Um, okay, great. Well, um, why don't I start with a few that I haven't brought with me, just to say yeah. um, what's on the list. Um, and I couldn't do this, and I realised that I haven't uh, warned either of them um, what I'm about to do now, which is, Eric, I'm afraid I don't have a book of yours on the list. I'm oh. very, very sorry. That's I do fine. have a book of Tim's on the list, though, which is yes, the awkwardness in the room. You have very um, good taste. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, taking your list incredibly seriously till I saw my book on it. <laughs> yeah. There's no, no <laughs> right. So, so, so um, starting off, Tim, Tim's book, Words of Life. I remember in my first year here, I'd come to Oak Hill. I'd read 
um, a fair bit of theology even before coming, um, was um, young, punky, and arrogant, um, and now I'm just slightly less young, um, but still a bit too <laughs> punky and arrogant, maybe, I don't know, um, and thinking I want to do some serious theological reading, and I wanted to find a good book on scripture and this little IVP number, and I thought, well, this would be a really helpful introduction, I'm sure, um, sort of maybe a few a few good points in here that are really going to help me, but, you know, I'm a theological student, I want something more serious than this, and then I opened up this book, and there was Barvink and Warfield and Calvin and some rich theology on the doctrine of scripture um, and it it really blew me away and so now Tim's book um, Words of Life I think is the book um, to point people to for a, an accessible and yet very rich introduction to scripture so there we go thank you that's, that's wonderful that's fa- that's very kind of you to say Actually, okay. just occasionally I get an email from someone I've never heard of saying your book really helped me and I don't know I'm sure we all feel this if any you put time and effort in and it costs other people's money and it's just you're working away and if anybody says, you know, what you did was worthwhile. Hmm. That, I, I'm the kind of British person who just wants to go, oh, no, it was nothing. <laughs> but thank you. That's, that's, no, that's my great pleasure. Tip. Um, that was Actually, great. what I'd throw in is, um, I, ha- I, mean, I haven't yet read this. I'm hoping to get to it quite soon. Um, Mark Thompson uh, from Moore College has just produced a sort of a, shortish accessible 200 page book on the doctrine of scripture mm. which i'm i'm really excited mm. to get to mm. Great. Um, i think this could be could be a new go-to mm. he he he's building in some more recent theology that i just didn't know of and take account of at all when i was writing mm. mine. Mm. people like john webster mm. uh, building into a really orthodox doctrine of scripture so mm. um, right uh, i i'm confident that's going to be great looking mm. forward to getting to it wow excellent Wow. Excellent, good. So, so that was that was one on the list. Are any, any others on the list that um, I'm not going to spend time? And so, Sinclair Ferguson, The Holy Spirit. I think mm. that's a fantastic book mm. um, on the Holy Spirit. I've got quite a lot of Michael Horton on here, so he counts as one entry. But I've got a fair few things by him. Probably the in terms of living reformed authors, he's probably had more of an impact on me and my the sort of thinking I've had um, than than anyone else. Um, is, that, is, is that his four volume? theology there's a, a variety of ones on here i've got the christian faith which is the one yeah. volume kind of distillation of that four yeah. parts he did um christless christianity is on there that's the first one of his i read and that was um basically his he uses the reformed distinction between law and gospel to argue that lots of modern evangelicalism is actually law light and he's thinking particularly in american perspective it was oh. written a while ago now maybe things have changed but there's a phrase that a sociologist called christian smith used called moralistic therapeutic yeah. deism mm-hmm. i first yeah. came across it in that book yeah. by michael horton crisis christianity and basically completely reduces the sense of weightiness that mm. historically attributed to the the so-called first use of the law um the idea that the law shows you that you cannot save yourself and that you yeah. need christ and once you reduce that then you actually make christianity something perhaps that is about rule keeping and doing good yeah. and that book shows that actually that's led American evangelicalism, at least, mm. into a very dark place. And what mm. you need is a weighty sense of the law so that you can really hear the good news of mm. the gospel. Mm. Right. And, wow. um, and so that's why it's Christless Christianity, because it's yeah. Christianity that doesn't need a saviour. Wow. Um, so, yeah, wow. That, that was a really influential book for me. Wonderful. This um, is so Michael Horton, H-O-R-T-O-N. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if someone's listening in, hasn't particularly heard of him, or maybe heard of him, not read him before, Christless Christianity would be a good way in, do you think? Um, it would be a good way in, I think so. I mean, that was my way in. 
and I, and it was a really helpful way. And he's he's got lots of books on the list. His his the Christian faith is his one volume systematic theology, and I think that's a really good one yeah. to have on the shelf. I think if if a pastor's looking for a contemporary systematic theology, my my choice would be Horton. Mm. So, wow, great! Yeah, wow. there's lots of other good ones out there, but sure. for me, Horton is a good one. So. And the big one, I'm just if I remember rightly, there he. You did an abbreviated thing. Is it called Pilgrim, Pilgrim Theology? Theology? Yeah, yeah. And if a pastor is thinking, oh, that or that, what would your recommendation be? Depends what they're wanting it for. Okay. If, if they're wanting a book to teach doctrines to their congregation then, and to work through Pilgrim Theology would be a, a good one to go with. Mm. Um, if they want a, a, a truly systematic theology in the sense that it really does hold together with particularly the use of covenant and redemptive history as a, a real theme that, that drives the book forward, then the Christian faith, I think, is a really good one for a pastor mm-hmm. to have on their shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So d- deeper dive then. So the, the five I've brought with me, this is the first one. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm going in sort of chronological order in terms of when I read them and then the impact they had on me. And so the first one is this one, The Good News We Almost Forgot rediscovering the gospel in a 16th century catechism uh, which is a rubbish book title i have to say no <laughs> offense to kevin de young um i, I don't uh, particularly the subtitle it, it doesn't sound very exciting but this is on my top 20 absolute must reads from the 20th century and i read this a friend of mine who's a reformed pastor in america who used to live in the uk gave it to me because i just i wanted to to figure out how do you go deeper into Christianity? Where are the resources to really help you go? This is right at the start of my um, sort of older Christian life, um, way back when. And he introduced me to the idea of confessional Christianity in, in the sense of looking to particularly the reformed confessions and catechisms of the 16th and 17th centuries as teaching tools, as um, points of doctrinal unity um, but also as, as ways of getting the gospel into your bloodstream so that when you come to any part of scripture, you have a sense of the, the big story, the big shapes of the, hmm. the Christian faith, so that you understand how this part of the Bible fits into the bigger whole. Hmm. And he gave me this book, and I read it, and it, it was absolutely superb. Um, I think Kevin DeYoung's written a lot of very good books. For me, this is my favorite by a long way, um, because what it is, it's 52 chapters and it's a very short commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. Mm. Heidelberg Catechism was produced in 1564 um, as a, a way of uniting these newly emerging Reformed churches around the what they thought was the rediscovery of the gospel, mm. um, that it had been lost or at least very heavily covered. And so in rediscovering the gospel, they wanted, um, well, a particular prince in a particular region wanted something to bring people together um, to be able to teach children the faith, teach adults the faith, and be a point of unity for these new Reformed churches. And so he got a variety of people together, but Zacharias Ursinus is the sort of lead writer to write a series of questions and answers about the Christian faith, to teach it and provide a point of unity. Mm. And the Heidelberg Catechism was what came out of that. Mm. And catechizing um, has been around since the very early days of the church, People sometimes hear catechism and think, ah, oh, that's what Roman Catholics do. I didn't realise Protestants do it. Well, actually, Roman Catholics, so I've heard, heard what Protestants were doing, with things like the Heidelberg Catechism, and thought, well, that seems like a good idea. Let's get in on that action. Mm. Um, and the Heidelberg Catechism was one of the earlier catechisms, and it treats the Apostles' Creed, 
the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. And it moves in sort of three stages of guilt, grace, and gratitude. So the state of humanity's misery under sin, the grace that is available in the gospel, and then how to live your life in gratitude, in worship and obedience. And the Catechism takes you through all of that in in 52 chunks, but there are several questions within each chunk. The idea is you teach, you go through one chunk every week. Hmm. So there are 52 Lord's Days of Hardware Catechism. And and your motive for all of this was growing in Christ, yeah. growing as a Christian. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was the larger motive. And and did that happen as you yeah, worked through the book? And that's why that's why I love the book because it yeah. really helped me do that. And hmm. and it's yeah, Kevin DeYoung said he says it in his introduction. He set aside a year to blog his way through the Hardware Catechism. Uh, it must be nice when you set aside a year, blog your way through, and then someone goes, "Can we publish that, please?" Yeah. Which yeah. Well, it worked, works for him in various <laughs> ways, I think. But certainly in this book, that's what they did. And I, it was fantastic. Really accessible, straightforward language. Just saying, look, this 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 question gets at this. So so you may, if you've never heard of the Heidelberg Catechism, you may have heard of the first question, which goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. And so on and so on. It's such a wonderful reformational pastoral instinct, isn't it? Yeah. Question one: What is your comfort? Yes, what absolutely. Is your comfort. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Chris, the, for some folks who maybe have not been brought up in traditions that have been strong on catechesis mm. in Heidelberg, they have heard of it. There can be a sense, and I've heard this too, and, and there can be reasons for this being a legitimate worry—a worry that getting really excited about things like Heidelberg Catechism, is in the end going to produce people who are just excited about micro points of doctrine, mm. arguing mm. about the proverbial angels on pinheads and not mm. really getting on with gospel ministry or not really a, a heart of warmth toward Christ. Yeah, yeah. Um, clearly this this was not the impact that that book had on you. No, no, and, and on lots of other people as well. I mean, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, so claims introduction, and, and I've seen this... Um, verified elsewhere behind the bible the pilgrim's progress and imitation of christ the halberg catechism is the most circulated book in the world and um, within i think a century after its publication had been translated into languages covering most continents of the world because mm. it was used as a missional tool to go and reach people with the gospel mm. as well as build those who had received and believed the gospel mm. so historically that doesn't pan out and and Certainly in lots of people's experience, that's not the case. Then and anything can produce formulaic hardness yeah. of heart, I guess, to, to things of yeah. God. So, yeah, um, I, yeah the, that catechisms may have done that in the past doesn't mean that they're to blame, yeah. as it were. And I think one of the things in terms of ministry then that I, I really found with this is you kind of do something like a Christianity Explored course at your church, um, which, is, which is a really helpful course, and, and lots of people become Christians through it. What do you do next? Well, I know there's Discipleship Explored, uh, a few weeks of extra stuff, but then you want to to give people the big shapes of the gospel mm. and the Christian life. What do you do to achieve that? Well, mm. you know, attending church regularly, maybe in small group things. But something like the Heidelberg Catechism, which is designed to be gone through in a year, is a fantastic way to introduce people to the creed, so the big doctrines of the faith, the Ten Commandments, what does it look like to follow Christ, mm. and the Lord's Prayer. What does it look like to worship and pray? Mm. 
And if you've gone through that with a guide as trusty as Kevin DeYoung, then you've you've got some pretty good stuff mm. under your belt in a year then. Mm. So as, as a discipleship tool, something that's proved its worth over the centuries, mm. pretty good place to start. Mm. So I, I, again, this is this is Chris Stead's list, not the absolute must-have list for everyone. Sure. And so sure. I, I, I think this is this is a really great tool, and I think Kevin DeYoung's commentary on it is a really good place to start. Mm. Tremendous, tremendous. Shall we, shall we move on? Yes, sure. I'm, I'm reading Upside Down, the author of the next book. I'm quite excited about this book. Yes. Okay. Yes. Hit us with it. And I, I read this book on your recommendation and enjoyed it a great deal. Oh, so, did you? Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. what's the big point? <laughs> there are a number of big points that I really enjoyed. The big point, the, the way I would say it in a simple way is that... Should we say what the book is? First. That's probably best. Say that first. I can, this is your book club, but I'll summarize it if you want. Does God Suffer by Thomas Wynandy. So, Eric, does God Suffer? Having read um, the book. I, I, I took him to be saying that God is not the kind of being who is ever in, overwhelmed with emotional turmoil, and he never has any emotional needs that he has to attend to first before he gives to you, comforts you, loves you, and receives you. So it, these sorts of doctrines can very easily make God sound cold or ghostly or distant. Mm. They are not intended to do that. But just that God is always able to be perfectly loving, kind, sympathetic, tenderhearted to you out of his own fullness mm. and, and out of uh, his own unruffled fullness, if I can put it that yes, way. Yeah, is yeah. that fair? That's, that's a very good, very good introduction, I think, to the book. So yeah, it, it touches on the doctrine of divine impassibility. And from uh, the Latin passio, meaning to suffer or to undergo some sort of change. And so therefore the question, does God suffer? The short answer is no. Um, but the reason why no is such good news is what Thomas Wynandy spends this book setting out. And I read this in my first... Because it can sound like bad news, can't it? It, it can, can sound, sound like, bad like news. God is now... God is now it's, it, it's quite easy in a kind of loose pastoral way to make God feel more relevant to my life and closer if he mm. if he experiences what I do mm. yeah, absolutely. in the troubles of this life. Yes. And, and, so in and, a sense, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Yes, and, and Thomas Wanandi is very alive to that. And in fact, he even says in his introduction, you know, the thing that frightens me most about writing this book is Auschwitz. Um, mm. how, do, how do I write a book saying God does not suffer when the weight of 20th century theology has said... Look, the only way we can offer a God who answers the protests of so-called protest atheism, which is, I don't care about rational arguments for the existence of God, but look at how wretched the world is. I'm going to disagree and disbelieve in God just out of protest. Mm -hmm. um, and he says, I recognize that is hugely weighty and hugely significant. And yet he presses on and says, no, no, the, the answer that the Christian tradition has always said about impassibility and, and um, a, a Anglican from the 20, early 20th century called Eric Maskell said, basically, theology um, has very few doctrines as stable and well-attested mm. as divine impassibility. Oh. Um, it's there in um, the Chalcedonian settlement. Um, the assumption is, of course, God can't suffer. Mm. So how do we make sense of the incarnation? But, mm. but everyone at Chalcedon said, but we know God doesn't suffer, and it's mm. there, it's captured. That was God, not in question. That was not in question. That no. that was that, and so it, it even has, in that sense, creedal weight, um, divine impassibility. But the way, one of the reasons that, so I read this book in my first year of, of Oak Hill, 
And it had a huge impact on me for a number of reasons. One of them is the way that Thomas Wanandi goes about reading the Bible, which is to say that I'm going to take the Bible so seriously, I, I have to read the whole thing and let the whole thing weigh upon my interpretation of the whole thing. And one of the big issues in thinking about the doctrine of God is the apparent tension between those texts which present God as beyond this world, as, you know, the big sovereignty-type texts, sometimes called the texts that speak of God's transcendence, to transcend, mm -hmm. to go beyond. Mm. God isn't part of the world order. God isn't affected by the world order because he made it all. He's bigger than it all. You've got those texts. you then got texts, the so-called imminence texts, the kind of present-to texts where God is really intimately involved in the life of his people. And sometimes those are set off against each other as though they're, mm -hmm. they're parallel modes of God's existence or they're in tension with one another. And Thomas Wynandy does this, has a whole beautiful chapter on Yahweh, the holy other, where he says, you read, the, you read the whole picture carefully and what you have is a God who is so intimately involved in the lives of his people that no created being, nothing in the universe could be that intimately involved. Mm. And in fact, the very texts which speak of God's imminence reveal God's transcendence. Mm. Only a God who is outside the limitations of the created order mm. could be the kind of God that Israel enjoys, for instance, in the book they of Isaiah. They depend on each other. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so what kind of God could be the God of Psalm 139, mm. who is closer than my inward thoughts, who knows mm. every word even before I speak it? What kind of God could be that God apart from the the transcendent, sovereign, majestic creator mm. who mm. is not in any way limited by any part of creation. Mm. Only that God. So the imminence texts, Wainandi says, reveal the very transcendence of God. And, Interesting. and I just, for me, that really then made sense of the whole. Yeah. Um, so and this is, this is, just to state, this is immanence, isn't it? We know, when, you, when we say immanence, Sorry. it's not immanence as in happening any moment. Yes. Immanence, yeah. remaining present with, present to. And so he has a whole chapter on that. He, he moves through a variety of different arguments um, to show that actually the impassibility of God is not that God is, uh, in the words of some people, a metaphysical iceberg, that he's mm. frozen, static, and that that's why he doesn't suffer. It's because he is so alive with his own life he, in, in the word, and he, he's a Roman Catholic, so he uses um, the language of Thomas Aquinas a lot. God is so fully actual that there isn't any passive part of him that's just sort of lying there waiting to mm. come to life. Every part of him is alive all at once, mm. and particularly in the life of the Trinity. Um, each, each person of the Trinity is fully alive. The being of God is fully alive in the relation to the Trinity. Mm. So it's not that God doesn't suffer because he's static, he's like a rock. It's that he is so alive and so full of love and life that he can't be moved to any anything else other than who he is. Mm. Can I ask you this? You, you've got very young children. Yeah. If you wanted to explain to your old her, your oldest child is seven, seven, mm. exp, explain it to her. How would you do it? And why it's good news? Why it's good news? Wow. Um. Well, I'm not saying these are the words I'd use, but some of the things that I'd want to um to touch upon are to show that we often think that um, God should be just like us, um, that we want God to be like us but just bigger. And yet we, we all know that we don't love perfectly, that because of who we are as creatures, um, who we are as, as sinful people as well, that, that our love is imperfect, um, it's, it is often broken and 
frailty. Um, Pete Sandlin in his book, Simply God, talks about this, that we we want, for some reason, God's love to be as feeble and frail as ours. And changeable. And changeable, as exactly. As well. yeah. And actually, the, the good news of God's love is that, in, in the words of 1 John 3, verse 1, it is from another place, literally, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. And the, the word that John uses is, from what place? Hmm. From what place is this love? God's love is not like the love that we know. It's not even just a better kind of love. It's a different kind of love. It's an alien kind of love. Two, two things that have really mm-hmm. helped me with this are that it's the impassibility does not mean God has no emotions. It's that he means it, it means that his emotional life is one proper to a divine being who is perfect and never changes, unlike a creature like me. And that and this is getting a little bit off topic, but secondly, I'm praying to a father who never changes, who who is never his emotions are never chaotic and overwhelming within him. But I'm praying to him through Jesus Christ, who is two natures joined together in one man, who has a passable suffering human nature. Mm-hmm. I find it so moving in John 11, where Jesus sees his friend in the grave, and, and it, it always gets under-translated. The Greek is something like, it, it's like to make a noise like a horse makes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean Jesus is going, like, the, Jesus has a breakdown, which, you know, which God can't have. Um, and yet I'm praying to an unchangingly loving father through Jesus Christ, who never changes and who utterly understands what emotional turmoil mm. is like. Mm. We're getting a little bit off topic when we say this, but it's comforting to me yeah, to yeah. think, I, yeah. I, I can't change God's heart toward me. He has no other emotional needs to deal with. Yes. But in his son, he knows exactly what that's like. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the question of God's emotional life is, it's precisely that for a start, when we have emotions, we have embodied emotions. Sure. Mm-hmm. And God doesn't have a body. Sure. Yes, the second person of the Trinity has a body because he is incarnate, but God, as God, has no body. So straight away, whatever you want to say about God's emotional life is going to be radically different to what we say about ours. And that's one of the things I really like about this book is one, Andy's very happy to then bring hugely rich and mature biblical reading into conversation with things like simplicity or Mm. actuality, which are technical terms which, um, you know, Come and do the doctrine of God at Oak Hill, and you'll find out what they mean. But, but, but the, the some philosophical notions that Thomas Aquinas drew on quite heavily, that the Church had drawn on long before Thomas Aquinas, to to try and capture exactly what the Bible says, which is God's life is fully alive, and there aren't parts to God which are less alive, or parts to God which are less essential to God, but that all of God is fully alive all at once, and that that precisely because that life is untouchable, He is free to be close to us, intimate, loving, saving. He doesn't save out of any need. He didn't create out of any need. Thomas Wanady brings all of that together. This this is one of my favourites theological books of all time, I think. Mm. Um, Fantastic. I, it's again, wonderful. And it's, it, it's wonderful how you are building on the work of others. Have I mean, you mentioned the Doctrine of God module, which is kind of a capstone in our third year, but it's wonderful how you and others have really put that front and centre mm. of the kinds of things we're trying to do here. Because it is the case, isn't it? Just as you've said, impassibility just unquestioned across the board of orthodox faith mm. until around roughly around about 1900 when and then evangelicals in various places can either deny it or forget it or ignore it or even not know about it mm. and so to bring these vital historic doctrines back onto the table mm. uh, and you've already pointed out how pastorally that's crucial just in terms of if someone wanted to read around this a little bit, how 
how accessible is that book? What level of theological education ought someone to have had to for that really to be useful? S- some, I think. So, so some familiarity with um, with certain Christian doctrines like the Incarnation and the Trinity, um, in order to really understand why it is you can speak about Jesus suffering as a man with, without that needing to compromise his divinity, things like that. Yeah. So, mm. there does need to be, I think, some foundation there in order to be to be able to make sense of it um there are a number of books out there um that are deliberately written for people who who might not pick up a, a thomas yeah. Andy. so uh, gary williams his love endures forever that's a, a really lovely i book love on, i love that on book. the attributes mm. of god that's fantastic it ends with a prayer each time doesn't it Isn't oh it's right? brilliant yeah yeah every every chapter is very devotional mm-hmm. and meant to lead you to reflect and meditate. And similarly, Pete Sandlin, Simply God, mm-hmm. does the same sort of thing, which is to, to move towards that um, that devotional side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew Barrett's um, None Greater does um, something similar as well. I don't think it finishes each chapter in the same devotional key, but again, doing this thing called looking at the attributes of God, mm-hmm. which historically was, was quite a, a, a thing that people did, um, falling less out of favour. If you want something... That's a a bit chunkier and breaks down particularly divine impassibility more. Um, there's a book written by um, some Reformed Baptists um, called "God Without Passions," I think, um, something like that. It's a it's a it's a sort of book of essays by a variety of people on a variety of t- topics, um, re- all trying to argue for divine impassibility from biblical, historical, pastoral, theological mm. angles. Mm. So that's mm. a that's a good one there. Wonderful. Now, I'm very excited about the next book you have here because yeah, it's, not, it's not nonfiction. No, it's uh, no, it is not nonfiction. <laughs> um, it is uh, it is uh, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. So this is um, you read this, haven't you? I have. Have you? No, I haven't. Okay, so I'm interested to hear about it. So Marilyn Marilyn Robinson is for a start a fantastic user of the English language. Mm. Um, I've read lots of things that she's written and her ability to articulate ideas is just wonderful mm. um her novels are beautifully written gilead i i don't know the publication series i think this might be the first but i might be wrong um is one of a series of novels relating to a particular family in sort of rural america this was the first one I, i've read i've read the others this was my favorite um it's a series of letters written by an aging father to his young son. And the aging father is a pastor of, um, I, th- I think, an Episcopal church. It's never quite clear to me quite mm-hmm. the denomination, but it's a series of letters written by this this father to his son, just reflecting on his life, telling the story, this very slow-paced story of just a couple of characters in his own life. But the reason why I love it and why I've included it in this, you know, explicitly Christian literature is that he reflects very deeply on the nature of the pastoral task, Mm. on the things of God, Mm. on the gospel, forgiveness and sin and redemption, on heaven and hell and Mm. everything that is within the range of Christian things that you might think Mm. about Mm. is reflected upon in this book. But one of the things that I really loved in reading this book is the way in which it shows that people are far more complex and rich mm. and interesting than I think we can often assume in mm. quite a reductionistic way of, well, there's sin, there's a need for salvation, 
people are sinners, let's just hit them with mm. that and kind of move on. Mm. But people are far more complex and, as I said, far more interesting than that. And so that the pastoral ministry is a practice in patience mm. and in slow burn, just seeing seeing people grow, getting alongside them, not being quick to correct what they think mm. just because you know what the right thing to think is, mm. but being there and loving people and, and doing that kind of thing. And so I, I loved it for that alone, as well as the incredibly profound theological reflections. I, I adored that book. I would so love to read it again. I found it so moving. I found it hard to put down. Yeah, yeah. It's not a thrill a minute kind of book, but mm. I would get reading it and it was difficult to put down. Yeah, yeah. I, part of the reason I found it so moving was all the things you're talking about, just the ordinariness of their lives and like the, the church roof being leaky and needing yeah, to yeah, repaint yeah. it. And these really profound meditations on scripture oh. and, and this man's son and his wife and other things going on. And he's a very realistic character. And there are a couple points in the novel where he's worried about sin in someone's life. And it's like he doesn't, even, it pains him even to say, and it's like he doesn't want to think the worst about someone. Mm. And toward the end of one letter, he's starting to get worried and he stops and he says, I need to get a hold of myself right now because I'm not trying. In fact, I think at one point in the, in the letter, he says, I have two choices. I, I can continue to worry or trust God. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those yeah, are yeah, my yeah. choices. Yes. Um, put put in fleshing that in a very believable character. Yeah, yeah. I made it doubly moving. As mm. It still would have been so valuable if Marilyn Robinson had said all these things in a, in a nonfiction book directly to me. Yes. But having creating this character and having them it's, say it. It's, it's, yes. I mean, the cre- I just don't know how... I mean, how novelists work generally, but novelists of this caliber to to create this character and draw and bring out the kind of reflections that she does. So, yeah, that's that's on the list. I I think it's a really good one for Mm. for pastors to read for the very reason that it's it's a pastor thinking very deeply who's very well theologically educated. Um, And one of the themes of the book is the 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 desire to make sure that. the quick theological answers aren't just thrown out mm. carelessly, but that there's a lot of paying attention to who it is that is the mm. audience and speaking appropriately. Chris, before you go on, could I slightly sidetrack and say, well, what if someone were to say, I'm just not really a reader, mm. or I don't like reading fiction, and you're saying Gilead is so wonderful to read. Well, what would you say to someone who said, I just, I just don't enjoy reading, or I, I don't like reading fiction, I never do it. Or even I like reading fiction, but my I'm a pastor and my time for reading is really limited. Yeah. Yes, and I'm frankly I'm going to get more bang for my buck of time reading Wynandy or the young than wading through pages of description in fiction. Yeah, I mean all legitimate points, and I don't want to. And again, this is this is Chris Stead's book club, and I like reading, and so that's you know I. If you don't like reading, then I have absolutely no problem with someone saying I'd never read any of those. That's fine. Like I'm not going to lose any sleep over that, and I don't sure. think you're a worse person for it. But um, I guess what if if someone was saying convince me that um, I should do more, I, I think for some of the reasons we've just been saying, mm. in that what Marilyn Robinson does is to translate some of the technical theological jargon's the wrong word, technical theological concepts and frameworks and put them in a concrete, lived-out life mm. in real relationships 
real, you know what I mean? In mm. in per interpersonal relationships and pastoral situations that everyone will encounter. And the way he can move from talking about the leaky roof to the incomprehensibility of God mm. in his reflections. So so I guess in reading different genres of books, you you can start then seeing how you might make those moves and mm. connections mm. and saying, well, actually, yeah, what does that um, really helpful commentary that I read on that passage in Ephesians, how might I start working that into the conversation over cleaning up after a coffee morning on a Tuesday? Wow. Wow. Um, and, and just seeing seeing it in examples like this, I think, is a really mm. helpful way. So there is value in doing that. Um, plus, I, I just think it's good to to mix it up and not not have one diet of books yeah. all the time. So. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Gilead. Gilead. Tremendous. That's great. Um, I, if we keep going, we can squeeze two more in. Okay, great. Well, I have two more to squeeze in. Tremendous. So Wonderful. look at that. Um, so my next one, um, at my wife Abby and I have been been through a few difficult times in our life and marriage, and um, we've read a lot of books on suffering, and um, people always say, what's the best book on suffering you've read? Um, maybe now it's Eric Ortland's uh, Suffering Wisely and Well um, in his uh, work on Job. Um, certainly some of the, some of the stuff you've said about Job, I've found tremendously helpful. Um, and so I have no doubt that that book will be a real blessing to many. Podcast number one? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and just, in fact, just pausing there, something you said in there that really struck me that I've been always tried to teach in Doctrine of God and never found a way to say it the way you said it. And I might be putting words in your mouth here, but just the way in which God's complaint against Job's comforters was that they... I mean, I, I'm, again, paraphrasing what you're saying, but basically they didn't believe that God had big enough shoulders for Job to say shocking things about him. Mm. The view of God was small enough or mm. so small that they had to correct people, correct Job straight. You're saying something shocking about God. Mm. Stop it. And it's almost like they couldn't handle that. So they were speaking wrongly of God by assuming God couldn't handle it. Mm. Whereas Job is, and I, and I think your your phrase was, you, we need to allow people to say shocking things about God. Mm. Um, because in their pain and their suffering, they sometimes that's all they've got. And if we clamp down and don't let people be honest, then actually we could do some damage. And God's big enough to deal with it. And and I think that's really valuable to say, well, actually, the aseity of God, the from himselfness, the, the way in which God ultimately is not affected in any kind of negative way by the world means that his children can mouth off and he doesn't stop loving them. Well, well, and a huge difference there is is that Job wants to reconnect with God. Mm. That's what generates yeah, yeah, the, yeah. where are you? Yes. And yeah. this is not fair. Yeah. And and that's what's that's what's crucial there. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and it's that, actually, if you really care about this, you will be angry and have, have some real feelings about it. If Job didn't really love God, he would not have yeah. said the terrible things about God that he it, did. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the... There you go. I'll and, if, there. and if you can discern in a friend who's suffering... There's a heart of love for God here. Yeah, That's yeah. what's generating the agony. Then you don't correct them theologically because they said something crazy and, and, when and they're in agony. And in in the same way that I guess a parent knows when their child is, you know, shouting at them, I hate mm. you, I can't stand this about you. You're, you're a parent and you go, look, I, I know they love me, I can handle this. My, my, I'm well able to take this. Um, and that's how, I think that's the picture you get of God. Mm. Um, 
obviously it's much more complex than that. But I, I um, anyway, I, I found that helpful. Um, but um, it's not about you, Eric. It's about my books. Um, the book that I recommend, um, the, the best book that I've uh, read on suffering is this one, Rejoicing in Lament, Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ by J. Todd Billings. And I think one of the reasons why I really like this is Todd Billings is a theology professor who thinks and writes very deeply about mm. complex theological things, who got diagnosed with a form of myeloma, which I think is a form of leukemia, mm. um, kind of blood-related mm. cancer, mm. and went through some pretty agonizing treatment and obviously um, very difficult news about prognoses and mm. length of life and things like that with, with two young children. And he, he, in this book, shows that incredibly complex, deep extended theological thought doesn't go against you when it comes to suffering well but mm. when employed and deployed well is a hugely helpful resource mm. and so he brings his thinking about union with christ and the psalms and job mm. and divine impassibility mm. to bear on how do i deal with incurable cancer as a father and a husband and someone who is now facing probably a much shorter life mm. and i think that's just so helpful but also the way he does it is to to use the psalms particularly to say the psalms give us language to lament to trust as well as to think about our union with christ and the nature of the god that we're trusting wow. in mm. and wow. so i think i think he he also weaves together questions about providence how does a good god allow evil without getting sidetracked into any of the sort of pat theological discussions or philosophical debates he just weaves it all in there really nicely mm. um fantastic I, that's wonderful I, I love everything i've read by todd mm. billings i haven't read that one it, i mean you're you're making it sound like it does a great deal i mean if someone was thinking i i would love my pastoring of others in their suffering or, or even as it were frankly my pastoring of myself in my own suffering mm. to to be deeper and richer theologically but without sitting at someone's bedside, giving them a lecture on divine impassibility mm. in in ways that are well-grounded and expressed in, in simple terms. Is he helping someone towards that? Yes, yeah, I think so. I mean, I again, would would this be the book I'd put in everyone's hands? He's going through a hard time. Probably not. No, indeed. Um, but, but, I, but for you? For me, it, yeah. was, it was ideal. And I would, encur again, encourage pastors to, to read this and think, actually, there's... There are a lot of resources available yeah. uh, in in Christian theology to think about suffering mm. and that, that go beyond, well, think of the resurrection or here are, here are a few verses on sovereignty. All yeah. things work out for good or something. Yeah, that, like that, that sort of wow. thing. Um, and so so yeah, I, I think I think it's really, really helpful mm. for that. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris. Final book. One more. Final book. Um so I'm a big fan of the late John Webster, um, a British theologian who died in 2016. He's written some very complicated and complex theological essays, which have been brought together in a variety of books, um, sort of compilations of his work. What I, The book I've chosen, however, isn't one of those. The book I've chosen is a, a transcription of a lot of his sermons. Mm. So while he was in Oxford, he preached a lot at... Um, I want to say Christchurch Cathedral or some somewhere in Oxford, a old building, big mm. church. The, these are a series of sermons um, 
some taken from his time there, some from elsewhere. Um, various students of his have produced a couple of books of his sermons. And I I, I love these, one, because they're short, because they're homilies mm. in a, a relatively broad church setting, and so they tend to be about five to seven minutes long. So that means about six or seven pages. Um, but again, what I love about these particularly is, one, you can use them devotionally in that sense. Um, he... he deals well with the text that is before him but he shows again how a bit like Todd Billings in his book on suffering how a rich and um, well thought through theology is a help not a hindrance to the pastoral task for for Todd Billings I think generally in suffering for for John Webster in preaching and in handling the Bible in Mm. in the context of teaching it and declaring it from the pulpit his phenomenal theological grasp of most things everything everything <laughs> um is brought to bear and he deploys it really well and it means he he picks things out very much there in the text and sort of picks it out and looks at it and and examines it and seals it and sends it it's just it's wonderful he he also had a great like marilyn robinson great grasp of the english language and is able to express himself well and um, because they're sermons they're not the sometimes quite dense um slightly difficult prose of his essays but much more accessible let's be honest if you've not done postgraduate theology webster is a stretch to read he is he He really is yeah yeah if someone's heard that he's kind of increasingly a big news and he is a massive influence on a lot of Mm. um terrific mainstream reformed theology increasing and a very good influence Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all, yeah. All, all, yeah. all to the good. Um, yeah. Would that be a good way in for someone oh. who what's all the Webster who are about? Yeah, definitely. So this one is confronted by Grace Meditations of a Theologian. Um, uh, on the back, it's endorsed by Michael Horton and Graham Goldsworthy um, from um, from Sydney. Uh, they they think this is a fantastic book. This is the first one. There's another one. I wonder how many books those two have both commended. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> they they go together on the same back. Yeah. Um, there's, an, there's another one, I can't remember it, it has Christ in the title, but another book of sermons. Mm. Um, and in that one, interestingly, that in the introduction, the person who edited the book went to sit with um, the late John Webster to say, you know, how do you go about the sermon writing process? And he said, well, I read the passage quite a lot and then see if John Owen's written anything on it, <laughs> then pray, and then I write the sermon. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, which I, think, which I think is a nice approach. Is the order important there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I presume he prays before he reads it as well, but um, uh, yes. that's, that's yeah. how he, he spoke about that. So, I mean, John, yeah, John Webster. That would shorten my preaching courses here if we just did that. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, well, yeah. Check uh, John don't, Owen. Don't, <laughs> don't tell the authorities here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and anyway, that it is a good way in. If you, if you want to, to see how uh, really rich theology makes a huge difference in the pulpit and and to get a sense of how John Webster approached Christian life, this is a, a good place what to start. Wonderful. I mean, for you, is, as the person who teaches preaching here, I, I've got to ask this question. Is it in any, in terms of form and language and style, do you think there's any way in which it's sort of exemplary for, quote, ordinary ministry or is there just a sense that this is a professor in a cathedral and it's just and that's going to be different from ordinary pastor in ordinary church? Um, I'd I'd say it's somewhere between the two. Mm-hmm. There, there are times you're aware he's a professor of theology in an Oxbridge cathedral, yeah. and so it, there's that comes with certain requirements and expectations, and and yet even even then even in 
those sermons, there's still a sense that this is this is a man who wants to tell you about Jesus and to um, to help people know how to to live the Christian life mm-hmm. in a more fuller and contented way. So um, yeah, so it's somewhere between the two. Uh, but I think I think any pastor who is thinking about preaching on a regular basis will be benefited by mm. this book. So. Wonderful. Wonderful. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you very much for being with us, Chris. I do have Augustine here, but... (laughs) Bye, Augustine.